the uh, landscape that we operate in, in has changed, as everybody senses and feels. A few years ago, or quite a, more than 10 years ago, I felt that, and I shared it with, I think, the church and a few leaders, that for me, leading the church had changed from being a fixed journey on a road where you're driving a car to where you've got fixed points of destination and it's linear and you're making progress from here to there to a journey at sea where you're sailing a boat where you're subject to the tides and to the currents and to the winds, etc. And so the nature of leading for me changed 10, 15 years ago and I'm feeling exactly the same thing now. But for those that are in leadership, the circumstances and the landscape have changed. And so I've entitled what I, I want to just briefly open up um, as the way of exile. The world and the culture that I grew up in no longer exists. I mean, even when I practiced law with Uncle Raymond, it was before the age of computers. Can you imagine that? We had old gray-haired ladies banging out on electric typewriters. That will no longer <laughs> exist, thank the Lord for that. <laughs> but what has happened in our culture is we've moved from a pro-Christian culture to a culture which is anti the gospel and anti um, Christians. And so today we are witnessing firstly the rise of authoritarian governments across the world. We are in a state of emergency. We've been so for 555 odd days. It means our civil liberties have been suspended. We have countries throughout the world placing harsh authoritarian rules on their people. They're telling you when you can go out, who you can visit with. Uh, we had our government tell us we couldn't go walk on the beach. And so the swing with governments is to grab more power and when the time comes to hand it back, there's a great reluctance to do that. And so we live in, where civil, in an age where civil liberties are suspended at the moment, and these powers can so easily be used against the Christian church. So that's kind of part of the atmosphere we're living in. Secondly, we're living in a world where there's growing nationalism. Donald Trump made all those hats with MAGA on, make America great again. We have all kinds of expressions of tribalism rising, even in our own country. Um, there's rising conflict, anger, unrest, and small issues take on gigantic proportions. And so, and I could mention a lot, but we could get really, really intense if I do. Number three, we live in an age of electronic surveillance. With the test and trace, there are intrusive technologies 
There are apps that we encourage to load that will tell us where we will tell the government, where we've been, who we've met, what shops we've gone to, uh, etc. And so there's this feeling of you've been watched all the time. There's a rise in religious extremism. Only yesterday or the day before, I saw that in Afghanistan, the um, religious government had banned, made it a crime for barbers to trim the beards of men. Taking that from their, under, their religious understanding of their way of life. Um, Al-Shabaab have said that COVID is God's punishment on the West and they are to celebrate every death from COVID as a victory. And so you've got this rise of um, religious extremism. Added to that, you've got an increase in conspiracy theories. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Some of us major in conspiracy theories. <laughs> Long before COVID. We all knew that the Illuminati took out JFK. Not so. <laughs> um, and generally with conspiracy theories, the minority gets scapegoated. So if you go back 2,000 years to when the church was persecuted under Nero, Nero sets Rome alight, and he gets this conspiracy theory that is the Christians. And conspiracy theories are used to persecute minorities. And then we have a climate of mental health issues. And so the suicide rate is increasing. People aren't able to cope with life at the moment. There's hopelessness, as Dave shared. And there's a thing called transition fatigue. That's what they're calling it nowadays, transition fatigue. It means when the rapid pace of change or disruption in our lives becomes more than we can adopt to. And so the rapid change that we're used to, the disruptions, now we can meet, now we can't meet, now I can go there, I can't go there, just becomes too much. The change becomes too much, and we, we, we get this thing called transition fatigue, which leaves us passive, lethargic, and hopeless. So the point I'm wanting to make is I, I, I love for, for God to reveal to us the big picture of where we're going so we can cope and help our people and lead our people through this thing. But we've got to understand the big picture. And so uh, the, the suggestion I want to make is that we find ourselves in a place of exile. The world that we know, the Christian, pro-Christian world, no longer exists, and we're living in a world that is anti the gospel and anti the Christian's. The cultural weight that we had in the past, we no longer enjoy in the future. And we are becoming a missional minority that's counter-cultural to the culture that we find ourselves in. We, we kind of diametrically opposed to the culture which is forming around a number of issues. So, for example, if you take gender... We find ourselves on the wrong side of the gender debate. If you take marriage, same-sex marriage, we find ourselves on the wrong side of that debate in our culture. 
If you take how to raise children, we find ourselves on the wrong side of that big debate. If you look at abortion, we find ourselves on the wrong side of that big debate. And so exile is not persecution. Exile is not always a bad thing. Because we're called to build a kingdom culture in the culture that we find ourselves in. We are forced to live on the margins where the Lord Jesus Christ lived. And the Bible is full of advice on how to live in exile. The Israelites went into a number of exiles, two really major ones. And um, the one that I want us to focus on, because out of their exile experience, we get some really good handles on how to live and how to lead in the season that we're kind of moving into. So that's where we're going. So in 587, the Babylonians rise up and they attack Jerusalem. One year later, they laid siege to Jerusalem, and one year later, in 586 BC, the temple and the city is plundered. Got plundered there. <laughs> okay. That's, flundering is a very serious plunder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not contained. <laughs> and so what happens is, the Babylonians take the best of the best into exile to Babylon. They take the wealthiest, they take the elite, they take the priestly, all the priests, and they take all the leaders. And they say about 30,000 Israelites find themselves marching into exile, away from their families, away from their homes, in the strange land and in the strange culture that they are, are, are going to. And so they've got essentially three options. They can, number one, fight to the death. In other words, I am not going. There's nothing you can do to make me go. You have to kill me. So resistance to death to not go. The other option is they can say, okay, we're going to go along, adopt the culture, live as Babylonians and um, take their gods and live in a place of compromise with the, 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 the religion that they had lived under God with. Or they could decide to live in the tension of the tension between loyalty to the king of Babylon and devotion to the Lord God. And you'll be interested to know that the books of Jeremiah... Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all address what it's like to live in exile. Some water coming down, yeah. <laughs> that light must be floundering, <laughs> floundering, <laughs> flooding, yeah. Um, and they all helped. They were all written during the time of that exile. And they refashioned their way of worshiping God through that exile period. So for the Israelites, it was an incredibly helpful time that they lived in exile and that they were, were going through the living in this tension between 
loyalty to the king of Babylon, and yet absolute devotion to God. And we kind of find ourselves in that position, in that place, in the culture and in the time that we are living in at, at the moment. And so Jeremiah gives advice to these guys that are living in, in exile. And the advice he gives them is in Jeremiah chapter 29 from verse 4. It says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those are carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Amazing counsel from God to these people that were in exile, longing for the life that they had been denied and the way of worshiping God at the temple. Without a temple, and the word of God comes to them, and he says, build, plant, and bless the nation that I have sent you to. And so God's showing his people how to live in exile. And so Daniel served the king loyally. Circumstances, however, arose where he refused to submit to the king's decree. The king put out this decree that you're not allowed to pray to any gods, any foreign gods except their gods. And it was there that he draws a line in the sand and his devotion and his loyalty to God overshadows his loyalty to the king. And he protests in a non-violent way. He ends up in the den with the lions. We know the story from Sunday school. And God sends an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. And the king comes the next morning and Daniel's fine. And so there came a time living in exile where his devotion to God overshadowed his loyalty to the king. And you find Jesus carries on that same kind of uh, way that Daniel lived Jesus taught his disciples to honor the governmental leadership of the day, which they did. And yet he harshly spoke out against those leaders that were corrupt and were misinterpreting God's word. And in the end, he went to the cross because of his non-aggressive, passive resistance to the authorities of the day. And so if we sit and we look at the weight of Scripture that comes to us through Jeremiah, Isaiah, etc., as we feel ourselves more and more out of place with the culture that's developing around us, what are some of the great lessons we can take out of these prophets? And what is God saying to us that will help us to live into the years that lie ahead as maybe we feel more and more as if we are exiled and the culture that we are building, the kingdom culture, becomes more and more at odds with the culture outside in the world. What are some of the great, important things that we can learn? What did the Israelites learn from their experience? Their hardship turned their hearts towards God as they sought answers for why they were in exile. 
their understanding of and their relationship with God began to deepen as the prophets brought, brought clarity in how they to live in the season that they were in. Um, Jeremiah and Isaiah were the two greatest thinkers of the time, and they revealed the heart and the will of God and developed a new theology which Ezra and Nehemiah brought back to Jerusalem. It was a way of worshiping God um, that was far removed from the corrupt way that they'd been doing it before. So they came back with a whole new understanding of God and how to worship Him. So there are three great things that we can take from the Scriptures that uh, teach us on how to live in this time of exile. The first one is that worship shifted from the nation, worshiping God in a temple, to the individual. So it's a major shift. As Jeremiah puts it like this in Jeremiah 31, from verse 31, 33. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And so God says this new way of worshiping me is going to be worshiping me personally as a personal God, not as part of a big collective. He brings down the relationship the personal relationship, which was a big revelation for the guys in exile. And they began to realize this God wants a personal relationship with me. And so there's a shift from the outward ritual of the temple to an inward personal conviction where individuals are personally responsible for their own walk with God. The one thing that Jeremiah was very brave with was that he declared there was only one God. And he says in the old scriptures, where he says, all the other gods that you worship are figments of people's imaginations. There's one true God, and he wants a personal relationship with you. So it was a massive kind of shift in the understanding of God. And so we faced in, with a culture that says all roads lead to God. All roads do not lead to God. All roads lead to destruction. There's one God. The other roads are figments of people's imagination. And that's going to get you great popularity with the culture that we're in at the moment. There's one God, Jeremiah said. He wants a personal relationship with you. Um, and so that was, one of the, 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 that was the first big block of revelation and truth that they received in exile. The second one was that um, God made a new plan for the reconstruction of the religious life of the nation. 
Ezekiel chapter 40 to chapter 48 deals in detail with a new way of worshiping God, with a new system. Um, there's great details concerning the way they are to approach God. Uh, he, he was able to marry the prophetic voice with the conduct and the practice of what happened when they met together. The, the ritual part was reduced to the absolute barest minimum. And Ezra and Nehemiah bring this back. And so the new theology, the new way of worshiping God is a way of spontaneity, of freedom, of less form and ritual, and more personal interaction and freedom in coming before God and worshiping, uh, and worshiping God like that. The third great truth that they received was a reactivation of God's original intent that Israel be a blessing to the nations. They'd lost that along the way. And so in exile, they're living in a foreign land, in a foreign country. They're living in another nation. And God begins to massage and reactivate that his original intent was that they would be a blessing to the nations. Um, Jeremiah chapter 16 from verse 19 says, Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in times of distress, to you the nations will come from the ends of the earth and they will say, our ancestors possessed nothing but false gods, worthless idols that did them no good. Do people make their own gods? Yes, but they are not gods. Therefore, I will teach them this time I will teach them my power and might. They will know that my name is the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah, when he was called, he was called to be a prophet to the nations. And so God begins to stir in exile once again this calling that he'd given to them to be a blessing to the nations. So how do we apply this to us living in 2021 in the culture and in the world that we are. Well, if we take that first shift from the temple ritual worship to a personal relationship with God, we need to get a fresh revelation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only to get a fresh revelation, but to live in a place where the gospel is alive in our hearts every single second of the day. Where the fact that I'm saved, delivered, and set free is a reality to me far greater than the increase in petrol price that's coming or more restrictions or economic decline. The reality that I'm saved, that I'm set free, and that I'm delivered from the power of sin, that God comes and he puts his arm around me and says, this one is mine. That revelation, that reality needs to become real to all, to all of us. The gospel is like this diamond that as you turn it, the different facets begin to shine. So it's, it's, you can't put the gospel in a definition, in a paragraph. It's far bigger, far brighter than that. There's, uh, the gospel is the story of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the enthronement, and the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. But it starts there. 
The gospel is the gospel of a new kingdom that God is introducing through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's further, it's a gospel of grace. It's a gospel of God's kindness and his love extended through us. It's the vehicle that he touches us. But it doesn't stop there. It's a gospel of eternal life, that we have the promise of eternal life before us. But it's more than that. It's God's complete plan for mankind. And we receive it personally, as a personal revelation, as a personal relationship, as a personal walk with this incredible God. And so we need to be teaching those things to our people. We need to have an expectation that the gospel still can transform human lives. That the gospel can still break into the darkest circumstances and set people free. That the gospel comes to deliver. And it's a personal relationship with God. So we can take that truth and apply that um, as we live our lives and as we lead our people. The second kind of application with this reconstruction of the temple life is that we need a full revelation of the bride of Christ, an understanding that together we form this magnificently exquisite, beautiful bride that's in the process of being prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ, which will involve on our side greater unity greater harmony, less focus on ritual and form, and more focus on meeting God and worshiping Him. That's why I'm so excited about tomorrow night, where we're going to put this into practice. We're going to allow, hopefully, the gifts of the Spirit to be released, where we're going to allow God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to establish the foundations on which we stand. Ephesians 2.20 cornerstone the Lord Jesus Christ, the teachings of the prophets and of the apostles, and uh, allow God to reestablish those foundations for us. And so, by way of application, allow God to restructure our church life. And so, it was in exile that the Israelites discovered a new way of worshiping God, and they brought, it was a way free of corruption a way free of immorality. The previous way was full of sin and sickness and immorality. And they came back with a purer form of worship. And I, I really do hold the conviction that the way that we meet together is going to change. It's going to change radically when the presence of God comes into the midst of us, when he's, he, the Holy Spirit is released there's no restrictions on the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, those disciples turn the world upside down or turn it the right way. Right. And God's looking for those kind of people. It's going to take that to prepare the bride for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. And by way of concluding, the last application is they rediscovered that they were to be a blessing to the nations. And so I'm encouraging us to reactivate and to lead our people into this great truth. It's been one of our foundation stones. It's been part of our DNA. But I think we need to rediscover it again. That God has called us to the four corners of the earth.
And we'll show a few clips tomorrow of guys that have planted, even in this COVID season, um, that God would stir again. As Dave said, there are guys sitting here that have church plants on their heart that God has placed, that we would once again revive the culture of being a blessing to the nations. And it doesn't take the restrictions to be kind of uplifted for us to live and walk in the reality of that. We can start doing that now. We've always been, from the word go, from when Jesus left, and those angels said to the disciples, why are you looking up there? Put your eyes on the earth. You've got work to do down here. It was kind of a subtle rebuke if you read it. They say, stop looking up there. He's gone. He's going to come again. Just as he's gone. But get your eyes down on the earth. You've got work to do. We have got work to do. So we might feel as if we're in exile. We might feel as if we're in a culture where we don't belong. But believe me, God has got us exactly where he wants us. And it was one of the richest times and of greatest revelation for the Israelites being in captivity. So live, plant, do all the rest of it. But we owe our devotion to the Father. Let's stand up together. Father, we honor you, we worship you, and we bless you. We thank you that your plans and your desires for us go way beyond our imagination to understand or to perceive. We thank you that you call each single one of us into a personal love relationship with yourself. That the gospel still has the power to break us into another dimension, another way of living. And so, Father, as we face a future which all the signs tell us is going to be more hostile to the gospel of the kingdom, it was in those circumstances that the church over the years has shone the brightest. And so we ask that you'd give us wisdom, wisdom to understand what you're about, Wisdom in working out strategies that will touch the hearts of people and that will build the bride of Christ to the dream that you hold in your heart for the bride. So I thank you for this evening. I thank you that we were able to meet like this. And we look forward to tomorrow and for you to continue to massage the will, the purposes, and the direction of heaven into our lives and into our hearts. We love you. We love you. We don't have the words to express our love towards you. But be glorified amongst us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. 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 God bless. We see you tomorrow at 9 o'clock.